This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeedTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NeedTech. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Vanessa Raba, and I'm an adult and pediatric infectious disease doctor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. For those of you not yet familiar with us here at NeTech, our mission is to increase the capability of the U.S. public health and healthcare system to safely and effectively manage individuals with suspected or confirmed special pathogens. In cooperation with the CDC and funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, we are talking about COVID-19 vaccines, not just for adults, but for children. Now, to set the stage, only some of the COVID-19 vaccines that we have available for adults in the U.S. are available for children, and that's only for children who are 12 years or older. We have multiple ongoing clinical trials in children to help get us data on the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. And today we're going to be talking about two of the vaccines that are in pediatric clinical trials. And these are the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, because these are the furthest along in the clinical trial process and the closest to getting approvals. So to talk about today's topic, we have a very special guest, Dr. Amina Hussein. Dr. Hussein is an assistant professor of pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins, where she serves as the pediatric medical control officer for the Office of Emergency Management in the Johns Hopkins Children's Center, as well as the pediatric lead for the Johns Hopkins Biocontainment Unit, a federally designated regional treatment center for high-consequence pathogens like Ebola and smallpox that require specific infection control interventions. Welcome to the show, Amina. Thanks, Vanessa. It's great to be on with you today. Well, thank you for joining us. So let's start out by talking about why we need to do these vaccine trials in children when we already have information available in adults. Thank you for that introductory question. I think there's a lot of people who pediatricians are constantly reminding that children are not small adults. They have very different physiology than adults do. And even within children of different ages, they'll have different maturity of their organs, of their pharmacokinetics, and including their immune response. For example, we might give children a medication at a different dose than we give adults. We give it to children based on their size. Similarly for vaccines, they may have different side effects than adults might have. We might have to give it to them at a different dose than we give adults. We just don't know until we study, we won't know. So that's why we need to make sure what we're doing is proper and accurate for children. What are they looking at in clinical trials of the COVID-19 vaccines in kids exactly? We do clinical trials to determine what dose we need for treating the children, as well as what side effect profile we're going to be seeing. For example, with the initial COVID vaccine that was authorized for adults, we found that there was a adverse event or side effect that we weren't expecting, the myocarditis. So that's something we do want to prevent going forward with the vaccines that we'll be giving to children. We definitely don't want any surprises. And now when these vaccine trials start in kids, how do they first get started? What's that first phase of understanding how a vaccine works in a child? So vaccines have four phases. The first phase is the phase that they are looking for what dose is going to be most effective for the child. Whether it's a medication or a vaccine, what they want to know is what is the highest dose that they can give that's going to give the effectiveness that they want without causing adverse events or reactions. 
So when we think about these adverse reactions to the vaccine, where do we draw the line between what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? That's a good question. I'm not sure if there is a hard line. What we know is that all vaccines, all medications can have some side effects. The question becomes, at what point are the side effects so significant that they're either going to cause harm or that they're not going to be tolerated by the public and they're not going to get that vaccine or use that medication? What's different when you get out of phase one into the phase two trials that we've been hearing about in the news? As we said, phase one is to determine the dose. And phase two is going to be a larger cohort of children, usually several hundred. And with that phase, there is no randomization. All of the children would be getting the vaccine and they'll be looking for tolerability and side effects. And when do we find out whether this vaccine works and get some data to the FDA to get this vaccine approved? Not quite yet. We still have phase three. Phase three is the randomized control portion of the trial. This is where the trial is randomized so that some of the children will get the vaccine and some of the children will get a placebo. With this, they're actually testing to see how effective the vaccine is. After phase three of the trial, that data is going to go to the FDA and the FDA will do an extensive review of the data before they approve it. And is that where the trial stops or is there something that happens after the FDA approves the vaccine? Even after the FDA approves the vaccine, the vaccine has continued to be studied to see if over time they're still seeing any side effects or adverse events that weren't initially known to the scientists. With vaccines, we are lucky because we do have a system called VAERS that is open for providers and the general public to report any side effects they see. So let's talk about the specific clinical trials that are going on for COVID-19 vaccines in children. I think people have heard a lot about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, both of which are mRNA vaccines. What do we know about these vaccines so far? Maybe starting with the data from the Pfizer clinical trials. Where are we at? So Pfizer completed their phase one clinical trial to determine the best dose of vaccine. They divided their ages into three different ranges, ages five to 11, two to five, and ages six months to two years. And for each age range, they had different doses they were testing. Once they determined the best dose, they went on to phase two, three. This was a combined phase two and three, where they did a randomized control of the vaccine versus a placebo. And how about the Moderna study? Are they doing the same thing or are they doing something different? It's an interesting question because they're actually doing something a little bit different. They've combined phases one, two, and three. And they have a first part of their phase one trial where they were determining which dose is going to be most effective. They've divided their age ranges a little bit differently. It was two years to 11 years and then six months to two years. After they finished their first half of their combined phase trial and decided what dose they were going to use, they went on to the second half, which was a randomized controlled trial. In that, they used the dose that they determined in the first half and did a randomization of three vaccines to every one placebo. So it was a little bit differently run and combined than the Pfizer. So we've heard in the media that the FDA has gone back and asked both of these companies to actually expand the size of their pediatric trials. Can you tell us a little bit more about why the FDA has asked for that? They actually have been concerned, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that some of these older children are getting the myocarditis or pericarditis with the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. 
we think because they might not have had as large of a sample size of that age range when the initial trials. So what they're asking for is an additional 3,000 participants to receive the vaccine from each trial. Uh, in that way, we're hoping to discover any rare side effects or adverse events that might be missed with a smaller sample size. We don't think that this is going to impact either of the studies too much. They were both actually planning on enrolling a large sample size as it was. So it's going to be minimal impact on the enrollment. So this myocarditis and pericarditis that the FDA was concerned about, is this something that we're seeing commonly? Is it something that's severe? Can you tell us a little bit more about where this concern came from? We started seeing it. It was interesting because the first question is, are the vaccines causing this? Because it wasn't a known side effect that had come out. And the question was, is it due to the vaccine or is it not? And what we know is that it's very rare. Only about 12.6 patients per a million who have received the vaccine will get this mild peri slash myocarditis. They're usually under the age of 30. After studying it, they did find that there is an increase in the number of perimyocarditis that we're seeing after the vaccines, and it is temporarily associated with receiving a dose of the mRNA vaccines, though there has been some reported cases with the non-mRNA vaccine as well. These are happening in mostly males, usually after the second dose, though we are seeing it in some patients after the first dose. In some of those patients we're seeing it after the first dose, there is in some a prior history of known COVID. So, you know, is it that hyperinflammatory-like syndrome that they're getting after the vaccine, but not to the extent that we're seeing in COVID? They think that it's probably happening because, you know, we have these theories that maybe it's a cytokine release or it is the autoimmune system with interferon-mediated hyperactivation, similar to what we're seeing with the inflammatory syndrome. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that we are seeing this rarely after the vaccine. And for the most part, it seems to be relatively mild, but you can get this myopericarditis with COVID-19 as well. And sometimes that can be much more severe and cause a lot more inflammation as well as all the other complications of COVID. So even if you get the vaccine, you have a small risk, it sounds like, of something very mild. But if you don't get the vaccine and you get COVID-19, you still have that risk also. So you mentioned that one of the reasons that we look at different doses in children is because of side effects like myocarditis. Both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are mRNA-based vaccines. So does that mean that we're going to be giving the same dose of those and we know what those doses are? That's a really good question. You know, there's a lot of ethical considerations for children. And though a lot of people are really scared that children are getting COVID right now, it's not ethical to be giving these vaccines without knowing the appropriate dosing. What we are testing for in the clinical trials is to look at how effective the vaccine is. And, you know, you can't give a vaccine and put a child in the middle of a COVID super spreader event and see if they actually get COVID. So you have to look at the immunogenicity for the body's ability to build antibodies in response to the vaccine. They would follow this for a couple of years and see where it's waning. And in adults, we're seeing that there is a little bit of a waning at six to eight months. So you've mentioned this concept, which is really immunobridging, of linking what are these antibody levels to how effective is the vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we use this and has it been used before for other vaccines that we know and we get good data out of it? Immunobridging is a great concept. They actually use it when they were making the HPV vaccine. With that, they 
used an animal model and looked at the animal's ability to make antibodies and what level of antibody was going to be protective for them and use that data as a replica for what level of antibodies we need to make to be effective in fighting off the infection. Similarly, for the COVID vaccine, they are looking at, since we have the adult data, what level of antibody is effective for adults to fight off the infection. And they're bridging that to the children to see if we can get that same level of antibody response. What dose do we need to get that same level of antibody response to call it effective in fighting off COVID infection? So what's being done to ensure that everybody who is considering getting this vaccine can look at the clinical trial and feel like the results are going to reflect how the vaccine works in the specific group with which they identify? Vanessa, that is such an important question, especially understanding the diversity of population that we have in the U.S. The vaccine trials are enrolling patients across the entire U.S. They are using both urban tertiary care centers as well as rural health clinics to enroll patients. So they are getting our full spectrum of geographic and ethnic diversity. They are also doing trials in other countries, Canada, Poland, and Spain. So we can feel comfortable that all children receiving the vaccines have been adequately represented in the trial. And when the vaccine gets rolled out and is going into children's arms, how do we ensure that we're picking up other rare side effects like the myocarditis that we've seen in some of the older children? Can you talk a little bit more about that safety monitoring that occurs after the vaccine gets approved? This is a great thing for people to pay attention to because this applies to all of us. The VIR system that was put together by the FDA and HHS actually didn't come out in the 1990s. And I know that, Vanessa, for you and I, that didn't seem too long ago. I don't know if some of our younger listeners are going to find that that was ages ago, but it's a great system for everyone to report any side effects or adverse events to. And it does not have to be the major thing that happened after a vaccine. It can be a small thing. It can be unknown whether you think it actually is related to the vaccine or not, but that's what the job is for the FDA when they get all of this information. Then they can use that to determine if this is caused by the vaccine. And if it's something that we need to stop the vaccine and relook at how it's made and how it works. And so it's important for all of us to continue to observe and to report these. Well, Ferris, it sounds like it's 31 years old, but I know what we've seen from the adult side is that we've been able to pick up these rare side effects down to one in a million using Ferris. And so it seems like so far it may be old, but it's still working and still picking up what we need to know. How do our providers or our public find that if they think they're having a side effect that's related to the vaccine and they want to put it into Ferris? Ferris is online. It's spelled B-A-E-R-S. The actual site is baers.hhs.gov. It's an online form that you can complete and submit right there. However, you can also download the form if you have somebody to help you fill it out, then they can fill it out. There's some required sections and some um, optional sections, so do the best that you can, but don't let any of it deter you from submitting something like this. So let's end with the question that's on everyone's mind. When do we expect to see these vaccines actually approved and being able to be given to children? Isn't that the big question? So it's already too late for the school year, unfortunately, but we are expecting Pfizer to submit its phase three, well, combined phase two, phase three uh, clinical trial to the FDA by the end of this month. 
it will take a few weeks for the FDA to go through this information. Pfizer is hoping to have their vaccine approved by the end of the year. Moderna, likewise, is hoping to have their information to the FDA by November. And remember, this is only the five years to 11 years age range. However, that's still going to be super helpful with children in school and going back to school after the holidays. There is definitely pressure being put on by the federal administration, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics to get this approved as soon as possible. But we can feel comfortable that the FDA will be following all of the safety guidelines before releasing these vaccines. So maybe not in time for the fall semester, but fingers crossed before the holidays and all of our family gatherings, and at least before the spring school semester, that we'll have some kids who have opportunities to get vaccinated and have that extra layer of protection when they go back to school. Absolutely. And also, though we've talked about the vaccine trials now, I think uh, that's going to become important later on. How are these vaccines going to be administered? Who's going to be giving them to the children? And how is that going to work? Many more questions still to be answered and still to come. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hussein. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. It's been great talking to you today. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to the special episode on COVID-19 vaccines, not just for adults. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics, from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds in both adults and children. If you have questions for us or ideas for future shows, please contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot O-R-G slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at NeTech.org.